Are you well? I'm on over here. <laughs> you guys are doing okay today? Well, good morning. We're happy to, to be together worshiping Jesus this morning. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I'm excited to be here with you. It's an honor, especially in this context, as we continue our current sermon series of the book of Acts entitled, Empowered for Jesus' Mission. Go ahead and grab a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some out, a few left on the table out there. If you need one, feel free to get up at any time, grab a Bible. In fact, you can keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. We'll just get some more. <laughs> and always, always, you can follow along on the screen behind me. It's really big. You can't miss it. All right. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. And I would like to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. It says, now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of his disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, there's a ton going on in our text this morning. A lot here. There's much for us to learn from these examples set by the church in Antioch. And so my goal this morning is to help make sense of this text both practically and relationally, especially in regards to as, as we look at both our individual Christian lives as well as the life of Mission Church and ask, what is it that we are known for? What is it that we're known for? You see, our prayer since the inception of Mission Church has been this, that the reputation of Mission Church would be that God is the one who's building it. And well, in our text today, we see the characteristics and we see the examples of such a church. And we also see the examples and characteristics of a group of people who would be the first ones to be called Christians. Now, if you were to step back from your life, survey your life, if you were to survey your current priorities and your current realities, what would you be known for? Who or what would you be known for? Now, before we answer this question and before we dive into our text, would you join me for a moment in prayer? God, we ask, Lord, that you would continue to be glorified this, this morning as we sit under the teaching of your word. I pray, God, that our hearts, the calluses in our hearts would be softened and that, that we'd have a greater understanding of who you are and characters of, of, of you. And also uh, that we'd have a greater understanding of who we are in light of who you are and that we would see clearly our need for Jesus that we would repent and turn to you. And God, I pray for those in here that may not know you, that you would give them a gift of faith this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a zeal and a passion for your mission, 
at hand, the call, that call that you've given to us to lead others to you. And pray, Lord, that as I speak this morning, the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight and beautiful in your sight. For you are my rock and you are my redeemer. Lord, we need you. And we ask, Lord, that your presence would be made evident in this space this morning. We love you and give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's be honest. <laughs> following Jesus, following Jesus is hard. It's not easy. It's difficult. And in some form or another, at some point in their lives, every serious Christian asks this question. God, what in the world are you doing? What is happening right now? I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life, there's been times in my life in which I thought I knew what God was going to do, and, and what God did was not at all what I expected Him to do. Have you been there before? Just me. Huh. Um, it, it didn't go as I expected. There's been times in this life of following Jesus in which I've felt confused, I've felt angry, I've felt frustrated, I've felt alone, I have felt as though God has been absent in my life, and if I'm honest, that left me with doubts. And I have to imagine that these early followers of Jesus that we read about here in Acts chapter 11 felt this way as they too faced opposition. They faced suffering and persecution, yet despite the opposition that they faced, despite the difficulties that came with following Jesus, it seems as if these earlier followers of Jesus did not experience a lack of faith, but rather what they did is they, they grew in their faith. Rather than being angry or, or frustrated, it seemed as if they grew in their, their hope and their joy and peace. Despite the difficulties they endured and the suffering they experienced, they seemed not to experience a deconstruction of their faith, but rather they grew in their boldness. They grew in their faithfulness to proclaim the gospel despite their current circumstances. Now, there are many accounts throughout church history of the boldness and faithfulness of Christians in the face of suffering and in the face of persecution. However, I'm reminded specifically of an account that I read this past week in a book uh, called Deacons by this author, Matt Smethurst. And he writes this about a man named Lawrence. He was a deacon in the Roman church in 258 AD. And Lawrence, he was the lead volunteer. He was in charge of the finances and the admin of the church. And news broke out that the emperor of Rome, he issued a verdict that all the deacons and all the pastors of the church were to be rounded up and killed. And it wasn't long before Lawrence was brought before the judge. And the judge gives Lawrence a way out. He says, you know what? I, I won't kill you if you simply bring me the treasure of the church. You could live. And so Lawrence, he wasted no time. He leaves the, the courthouse and, and he goes and he entrusted the church's finances into safe hands. And he gathers up the sick. He gathered up the elderly, the poor, the widowed, and the orphan, and he returns back to the courthouse with his band of misfit toys behind him. And the judge is obviously confused, and he's a little bit frustrated, and he says, what in the world is going on here? Like, what are you doing? And Lawrence responds, sir, I've brought what you asked for. These folks with me are the treasure of the church. And as a result, the judge sentenced Lawrence to a martyr's death. And as he endured the flames, he did so with such peace and such calm that he jokes with his executioners and he looks at them and he says, guys, I think I'm done on this side. You might want to turn me over. What? <laughs> Smethurst records that the, the martyrdom and the courage of Lawrence had such a great impact on the citizens of Rome that many people came to faith in Lord Jesus Christ and turned to him and followed him. See, Lawrence's story resembles many other stories of Christians who are faithful to Jesus even unto death. Lawrence would have been familiar with the boldness and the faithfulness of a follower named Stephen that we learned about just a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 7. And we see in that, 
that chapter, Acts chapter 7, that Stephen was murdered for his faith in Jesus as well. And as a result of Stephen's murder, let's look at Acts chapter 8 and see what happens. It's just a couple chapters before, so just hold your finger there and turn over to Acts chapter 8. It says, on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church. So on that day that Stephen was murdered, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles. Now take note of this phrase, because this, this is important for us later. All except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Now this brings us back to our text in Acts chapter 11. This is the context. Many scholars entitle this verse a hinge verse, as it represents a major turning point in the book of Acts. It's not only manifesting a wider circumference for the gospel, but also a center for the launching of subsequent missionary efforts. You see, everything that, has, that we have studied in the book of Acts has been leading us up to this point as Christianity is finally launched on its worldwide mission. Now, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Are you there? Yeah? Cool. Good job. Now, those who have been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen... The death of Stephen was just the beginning. It was the start of the persecution of the church. And keep in mind that the very real fruit of, of Stephen's death is the inauguration of the mission of the gospel spreading to all groups, all people, all ethnicities, all races. It was the persecution of the church that led to the multiplication of the church. And this word, persecution, you can write it down in verse 19. It speaks more literally to tribulation. It speaks of being crushed, pressed together, squashed, compressed, broken. Luke, the author of this text, is expressing an intense and a physical pressure. It's a strong word that speaks, it, it does not refer to inconveniences. It doesn't refer to mild discomforts. It's, it's a real hardship. It's speaking to extreme difficulty. One pastor makes a point that the underlining meaning of this word that is translated as persecuted, speaks of being under pressure. And this word was used most oftenly speaking of an olive press when it was crushing the olives to extract the oil. And friends, we have to understand that this is God's design. This is God's design. God doesn't simply allow suffering, but he ordains it. Think about it like this. How are you saved? Well, God sent his son Jesus to suffer and to die for our sins. He was killed. And, saved for, uh, and, and we are saved from our sins because He took our place on the cross. Jesus, the suffering Savior, would save us from our sins so that the news of a suffering Savior would spread throughout the world through the lives of suffering servants. Jesus suffered to accomplish salvation and we suffer to spread the news of salvation. God has ordained suffering as a means through which He will show the world that Jesus is better than health. That Jesus is better than wealth. That Jesus is better than ease and that Jesus is better than prosperity and Jesus is better than comfort and Jesus is better than possessions and friends. If you're following Jesus, then suffering is inevitable. But take heart because his mission, the mission in which you and I have been invited into is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. Look back at verse 19. So these persecuted followers of Jesus, they made their way as far as Phoenicia. Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Now, it'd be helpful for us to understand the context of this city called Antioch. Antioch was situated on the Orontes River. It was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, about 20 miles inward from the Mediterranean Sea. 
And during the first century, it was the third largest city in the the world. It was right behind Rome, Alexandria, Antioch. It was a big city. It was a melting pot for at least five cultures. You You had the Greek, the Romans, the Semitic, Arab, and Persian cultures all mixed in. This was a remarkably diverse city. Antioch was, was famous for its chariot racing. It was, it was famous for its deliberate pursuit of pleasure. Many historians have lovingly coined Antioch as the Las Vegas on the Orontes River. So this is a city that you and I can relate to. We're familiar with this city. We know what drives such a city. It was a city that was focused on self. It was a city that was focused on the pursuit of pleasure. In fact, Antioch was famous for its worship of the goddess Daphne. And there's this story about Apollo's pursuit of Daphne that was reenacted every day, every night, by the men in the city and the priestesses who were ritual prostitutes. You see, throughout the world, the phrase, the morals of Daphne, was a euphemism for uh, depravity. Much like saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Or, Sin City is a euphemism for depravity today. Amazingly, it was Antioch. It was in Antioch, with all its sensuality, with all its immorality, where the church changed the world. Look back at verse 20. There's one little word here, but. Three letters. And stop there, because we can't miss what's happening in this, this, this first word of verse 20. Three letters. This little word has to be one of the greatest changes of direction in all of the Bible. Because this marks the change of focus from telling just the Jewish people about Jesus to telling everybody, every race, every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity, everyone. From here on out, everyone's invited to the party. And it's here that we'll begin to answer our opening question of what is it that we're known for? And there's four examples and four characteristics that I want to point out this morning of a church that God is building. And as we pray that the reputation of Mission Church would be that God is building it, it would be helpful for us to take note of these four examples. And so number one, you with me? You doing okay? I know we just had a history lesson, so just making sure. A church that God is building raises up ordinary people who love Jesus, live like Jesus, and lead others to Jesus. A church that God is building raises up ordinary people who love Jesus, live like Jesus, and lead others to Jesus. Look back at verse 20. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. Remember Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and I said, hold on to that phrase. After Stephen's death, remember, all except the apostles were scattered. Who was it that was scattered? All except the apostles. It's a pretty simple answer. So in verse 20 tells us, some men from Cyprus and Cyrene, we're not reading about Peter. We're not reading about James. We're not even reading about John. We're not reading about the apostles or the church leadership and the church in Jerusalem planning a church over in Antioch. We're reading about everyday men and women, ordinary men and women who love Jesus, live like Jesus, and took Jesus' command to lead others to him seriously. And even in the face of persecution, as they fled, that message did not leave their lips. This church in Antioch was birthed by evangelism, by these unnamed men and women who had no official training, no direction, no human instruction, no precedent to follow, nothing but a burning love for Christ and the message of the gospel in hand. And they took this message to Antioch, and without realizing the revolutionary greatness of their act, act, they started one of the greatest 
churches in the history of Christianity, these ordinary disciples were willing, they were driven to share their faith. Sharing Christ came naturally to them, as natural as breathing. These everyday believers were empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. What an example for us today to follow. But honestly, think about this. Being the church is not new to us. If you've been in church for any amount of time in your life, this idea and this thought of being the church is not new to us. This call for Christians to multiply through evangelism, well, we're used to hearing about that. This call to participate in the Great Commission is not a new idea for some of us. And that command is to, to go, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything God has commanded us. This command is not new to most of us. However, let's be honest. Evangelism, sharing our faith, is the least of our concerns on a daily basis. And as unbelievable as it may seem, recent research indicates that there's now more than 200 million non-church people in America. 200 million! Making our nation, this blew me away, our nation one of the largest unreached countries in the world. In fact, the author and researcher Justice Anderson, he said this, the American church is in the midst of one of the largest mission fields in the world today. Only three other nations, China, India, and Indonesia, have more lost people. We're number four in the world. And to bring this closer to home, Las Vegas is number five on the list of the ten most unchurched city in the United States. And so not only are we number four in the world, but we're number five on the list of the number four in the world. And that means that in Las Vegas, there's one church for every 19,000 people. In his book, The Coming Revival, Bill Bright reported that only 2% of believers in America regularly share their faith. And only 5% of all Christians have ever led anybody to Christ. And according to the Barna Research Group, 75% of American adults who claim to be born-again Christians, when asked, could not define the Great Commission. And according to this research by the Barna Group, every minute around the world, 102 people die. Every hour, 6,098 people die. Every day, 146,357 people die. If you were to line up the people in the world right now, this minute, who are without Christ, the line would be approximately 1,734,848 miles long. This line would wrap around the Earth's equator 70 times. And I'm not sure about you, but this past week when I was studying in preparation for this morning, information like this overwhelmed me broke my heart, especially as we look at the culture of the American church and we sit with this mentality of a spectator mentality within the church that relegates ministry to those that we deem extraordinary. But the good news is, is for us is that in this text, that's not at all what we see. The good news is that every follower of Jesus, every disciple of Jesus in the church is a laborer. Mission church what we need is to be a church that's made up of ordinary people that love Jesus. Ordinary disciples of Jesus who are doing extraordinary things in the kingdom of God with the purpose of leading others to Jesus. So be encouraged this morning, Mission Church. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you who believe. The same Holy Spirit that was at work in these ordinary men and women in Antioch, planting this church and telling people about Jesus is at work in you as you tell people about Jesus in Las Vegas. Be encouraged as you and I have everything we need to live on mission and to lead others to Jesus. Pastor Dave Early said it like this in his book Evangelism. Following Jesus means actively loving lost people. Don't sit back and view yourself as a follower of Jesus if you are not actively going out to find and retrieve lost people. You can do it, and he will help you. Now, how does this guy, Dave Early, know that God's going to help us? What a statement. What a claim. Well, he knows it because look at verse 21. It says, the Lord's hand was on them. The Lord's hand was on them. A large number of who believed Turn to the Lord. These ordinary men and women saw results. They saw a large number of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. How? Because the Lord's sovereign hand was on them. You see, the Lord Jesus was the hero of their mission in Antioch. He was the goal of their message, and He was the source of their power. Jesus was the one building the church in Antioch and mission church. Jesus is our hero. Jesus is our message. Jesus is the source of our power as we rely on Him to build His church here in Las Vegas. Let's never doubt God's power to save through the simple, everyday means of ordinary followers of Jesus being faithful to love Jesus, live like Jesus, and lead others to Jesus. Number two, a church that God is building displays the grace of God. A church that God is building displays the grace of God. Verse 22, News about them, these everyday followers of Jesus, reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. Verse 23, when he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was so glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a large number of people were added to the Lord. He saw the grace of God. It reminds me of what one theologian Uh, J. Gresham Machen wrote this. He said, the very center and the core of the whole Bible is, is the grace of God, which depends not one bit upon anything that is in us, but is absolutely undeserved and is sovereign. And what this means is, is that God is the God of grace to the undeserving. And that's good news. God is the God of grace to the sinner. And so that means that if you're sitting in this room this morning and you know that you are a sinner then you are the one God wants. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 3, verse 22 through 24. Paul writes, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This grace that we read about here is forgiving grace. It's grace that, that reconciles us back to God. It's grace that gives us peace with God. But don't miss this because flip the grace coin and there's a whole other side of grace. And it's what we talked about when we meditated on that text in Ephesians chapter 2. There's horizontal grace. Look back at verse 22 of Romans 3. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to who? All. All. Everyone. All who believe since there is no distinction. As Christians, we have a new whole a whole new set of ground rules for how we are to live together. 
We have a, a whole new set of ground rules for how we, and instructions for how we are to be in community. You see, grace not only reconciles us to the Father, grace not only reconciles us to God, but grace reconciles us to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this idea of grace and this idea of reconciliation, think about it. It's confusing and it's elusive to our culture. This is not something that's new to the world. Everyone's searching for this, but it's elusive. It's like sand falling through your hands. All over the world, people are attempting to solve the problem of how in the world are we going to get along, trying to put it into division. But as we try, think about it most recently, we're just creating more division. (laughs) We're creating more issues. We're creating more problems. One of the looming questions of our day is, is there any way for us to live in peace with each other? And Jesus' answer is, yes, a resounding yes. In me, there's a way. God's grace not only restores us back to God, but the same grace restores us to one another. Church, Jesus crossed a great divide to embrace you and me, and now he's calling you And he's calling me to cross every man-made divide so that we might embrace one another for God's glory and our joy and the good of the world around us. Look back at Acts chapter 11. This is exactly what Barnabas saw. What I just explained is what Barnabas saw when he arrived in Antioch. And when he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he encouraged them to remain true, to continue this. Barnabas saw a diverse group of people. He saw a diverse church gathered together, united in Jesus and united in mission. Now listen, this is not an option. This is not a church growth strategy. But this is a picture of the church. This is how God's grace becomes visible. This is how Barnabas was able to see grace. Think about it like this. Imagine you were there. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's crucified in front of you. You're 10 feet, 5 feet away from him. You walk up to the cross and you rub your hand along the cross and you get a splinter in your hand and it hurts because it's real. And you open your hand and in the palm of your hand, Jesus' blood drips into your hand. You can see it. You can feel the texture of it because it's real. You can physically see the grace of God on that day. But what about today? What about right now? How can the world see and believe in the grace of God today? What would make sense or what would make somebody say, I don't have to take this by faith because because I'm experiencing it. I can see it. I can see the grace of God. How is that going to happen? The text says it's through us. Through us. Barnabas saw He saw the grace of God. And this word in the original original language literally means that Barnabas was watching this happen. He was watching the grace of God come to life amongst this church in Antioch. How? Because God's grace becomes visible when diverse people are unified around Jesus. God's grace becomes visible when diverse people are unified around Jesus. D.A. Carson says it like this, and We've quoted, used this quote before. You might be familiar with it, but it's wonderful. It says, ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and they owe Him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another 
for Jesus' sake. Mission Church, we are called to embody God's grace as we live in community. And the truth is, living in community is not easy. Let's just be honest. It's not easy. But it is glorious. It's wonderful. And it's worth it as people far from Jesus tangibly see the grace of God as they live unified around Jesus. And as a result, people repent of their sin and turn to Jesus in faith and follow Him. And one of the ways we practically do this here at Mission Church is through our house churches. On that card that Pastor Travis showed you in the beginning of the service, there's an area where you can sign up to be a part of a house church. It's, and house churches are diverse groups of, with, uh, with mature disciples of Jesus, people that are just following Jesus, and even people that don't even follow Jesus yet. They bring, uh, in the house churches, there's different ages and races and vocations, socioeconomic backgrounds. And wherever you find yourself this morning, whether it's in pursuit of God or maybe it's in your doubts about who God is, you're welcome to a house church. And it's easy to sign up. If you're not part of one, it's extremely easy. All you have to do is fill out that card, write your name, and check the box, house church. And I'll call you personally this week and get you set up. It's not hard. And I cannot stress enough how important to your discipleship it is for you to be a part of a house church. And if you are already in a house church this morning and you're sitting here, look around, find someone that's not, and invite them to come with you this week. Number three, a church that God is building is focused on making disciples of Jesus. A church that God is building is focused on making disciples of Jesus. Now the question is begging to be asked, what is a disciple? Well, the word disciple simply means learner. It's very simple. Disciples in the New Testament and disciples today are people who answer Jesus' call to follow him. So a disciple of Jesus follows Jesus by learning, trusting, and obeying his word. And this process, like I said before, is essential to the Christian life. I'm reminded of what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. This phrase, really my disciples, speaks to the truth that there are disciples who are not really disciples. In other words, there are disciples and there are unreal or fake disciples. There are discipleships that are mere disciples that is merely outward and cultural in nature. There are discipleship that goes down to the root of who you are. You following me? You see, the world is not just divided into two groups, disciples of Jesus and non-disciples but rather it's divided into three. Non-disciples, fake disciples, and real disciples. In other words, there are people who have no intention in following Jesus, people that say they follow him, and people who truly follow Jesus. Why do you think Jesus brings this up in John chapter 8? I think Jesus brings this up so that we might ask ourselves the question, well, which one am I? Jesus is giving us a test so that we can evaluate our belief. Are we genuine disciples of Jesus, or are we converts who are satisfied with the title? As followers of Jesus, we learn from Jesus by reading his word, by applying his word. And so these two church leaders in our text, Barnabas and Saul, went down to this new church in Antioch to investigate. What's going on here? Is this true discipleship that's taking place? And it says that for a whole year, they met with the church and they taught them to read 
God's word, to obey God's word, to apply it to their life, to, to continue sharing the gospel with others. And it was here, look at verse 26, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. This is amazing. These believers in Antioch did not call themselves Christian. This was not a title in which they came up with and put you know, on themselves. This wasn't like a, a social media status or it was just they didn't call themselves this. But rather, they were called Christians. And understand this term Christian was meant as a derogatory term. It was a term of contempt. It was a term of reproach. It's basically saying, look at these crazy people. They're nuts. They come into our city. They don't worship our idols. They don't observe our standards. And they live their lives entirely different from how we're living ours. How dare them? And so they sarcastically and contemptuously call them Christians, which meant Christ's men, because all they did was talk about Jesus to everyone. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Messiah. They said, repent and believe in him. This was the message that was constantly on their lips. So let's ask us a question this morning. Would those who know you call you Christ's man or woman because that's all you speak about? Because that's what your life looks like. Let's be honest. We live in a day in which it's easy to give intellectual assent to Jesus. But that's not what makes us a Christian. What makes you a Christian is the recognition of your rebellion against God, repenting and turning from your rebellion, trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your rebellion, and living your life intentionally loving Jesus, living like Jesus, and leading others to Jesus. These Christians in Antioch, they knew that Jesus was worth so much more than casual association. They knew that Jesus was worth so much more than church attendance. They knew that Jesus was worth total abandonment. Friends, following Jesus is so much more than simply making a decision and raising a hand, but it's a call to die. It's a call to die to ourselves because following Jesus will cost us. Trust me, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Number, number four, and I'm going to end here. You guys with me? You okay? Number four, and this is going to be a short one. There's much to be said about this one, but for the sake of time. A church that God is building is sacrificially generous. Look at verse 27. The narrative kind of changes, and it talks about this prophet who comes down to Antioch, and his name's Agabus. It's an awesome name. Uh, that one didn't make the list for me, unfortunately. Um, but this guy, Agabus, he stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius, basically saying, hey, this actually happened. He didn't just say it. It took place. But each one of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. These Christians heard about a famine that was happening. They heard about the need. Now, take note of this, because this blew me away this week. It says, each one of them, not some of them, not the few, but each of them gave what? According to their ability. They gave what they could. Please don't miss this. It doesn't say some of them. This phrase is so important because it's, it's, it's easy to overlook this, but that would cause us to miss a crucial and convicting truth of God's word. It says, each of them. And it's pointing to this truth, one that we mentioned earlier in the giving time of our service, but that nothing belongs to us. Nothing belongs to us. 
Everything we have belongs to God. It's God's property. And these believers in Antioch, understand, they, did, they were not well off. They were fleeing persecution. They didn't have much. But they responded to the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ accordingly. And it says specifically, they gave according to, according to what they had. And so we too should follow the same example. Because this is another way that we can live visibly the grace of God. This is a way we can visibly live out the gospel and show the world God's grace. So, mission. Let's be a church whose reputation is that God is building the church. As we love Jesus. As we live like Jesus. As we lead others to Jesus. As we display the grace of God through our unity around Jesus. As we focus on making disciples and as we generously and sacrificially give of ourselves and of our resources. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace and the fact that there's nothing that we, <laughs> there's nothing we could have done or have done to earn your grace and have reconciled us through you to the Father. And also, your grace is reconciling us to each other. And we thank you that through this, the, the, that grace is palpable. We can see it. And pray, Lord, that you would continue to use us in this city, not to make a name for Mission Church, but God, to glorify you, that people far from you with those staggering numbers would come to know you, that you would receive more glory as more people become worshipers of you. Use us. Give us the courage in our everyday uh, interactions to have your name on our lips, that everything would just come back to you and the greatness of, of your gospel and this call that you've invited us to. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your, your mercy and your grace and your love that you've just extravagantly poured out on us through your son, Jesus. We give you all the glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.